You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. So I heard a story recently, and I think it fits for what God is going to lay on, lay on us this morning. So this man walks into a restaurant, sits down with the waiter. The waiter walks up to him and says, hey, uh, what can I get you to drink? He orders the drink, comes over, the waiter gives the man the drink. The man grabs the drink, throws the drink in the, in the waiter's face. And in that moment, the waiter thought about losing his job and beating the snot out of the guy. And he said, wait, well, let, me, let me slow down. Let me figure out why this guy just threw this drink in my face. And the guy immediately is, is, is very apologetic. He's like, look, I, I have this compulsion that when someone gives me a drink, I just have to throw it in their face. And I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I promise you, I won't do it again. Will you get me another drink? So the waiter reluctantly leaves this situation, and I think you know where I'm going. He comes back, gives the drink to the man, and lo and behold, drink number two, boom, in the guy's face. And in that moment, the waiter says, out! Do not come back. Do not pass go and collect your $200. Deuces. Get out of here. About six months later, that guy comes back to the restaurant. Enough time has passed, the waiter has no idea who this guy is. Sits down, the waiter says, hey man, can I get you something to drink? The guy goes, absolutely, I'd love this. The waiter leaves, gets the drink, comes back, gives the drink to the man. The man grabs the drink and throws it directly in the waiter's face. And in that moment, the waiter goes, I remember you. Why are you here? You're dead, right? And the, the, the guy goes, whoa, 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 man, I've really been, I've seen a counselor. I've been working on this. I, I promise you, I am a changed person. And so the waiter goes, there's, there's just no way. And he goes, no, I, I, I promise. I've been working on this. I've been seeing a counselor constantly. So the waiter leaves. After being requested to get another drink, he goes and gets the drink, sets it down gingerly. The man picks up the drink, throws it in the waiter's face. And the waiter goes, dude, four times. You've told me you've changed. You told me you don't want to do it. And the, and the, and the guy goes, look, I, I have changed. I no longer feel bad about doing it. (laughs) And in that moment, what stuck out to me was there is a huge difference between being guilty and feeling guilty. See, in our lives, there are a, a vast array of times when you are indeed guilty in your life. You've done something that has wronged someone, that has hurt their feelings, or you've done the wrong thing, but you didn't necessarily feel guilty about it. Because they don't always go hand in hand. And on the flip side, there are times in our life where we feel really guilty about something. Where where, it's just eating away at us. You're losing sleep, but in reality, you're not actually guilty of anything. And this, this line of guilt is a very difficult and kind of gray area because there are times where we feel guilty and we're not, and then we are guilty, and maybe we do feel guilty, but there are other times when we are guilty and we're just going, eh, is it really that bad? Maybe it's their problem, right? And so what we're going to look at this morning, Lord willing, in this text is that Jesus is giving us a better way. 
He's taking away guilt, and he's saying that you no longer have to walk in guilt. You can be footloose and fancy free. You can be Tom Cruise in your underwear and socks sliding across the living room floor. Like you, and, and for those of you who don't get that, that's a movie called Risky Business. I don't, think it's an, I don't think it's appropriate, but it's probably, you know, older than you anyway. So the reality is God has come and said, I'm going to take away your guilt so that you can be free. And that is good news for us. But the question is, how do we live in that freedom? What has God called us to do in that freedom? So we're going to look at this this morning. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, I'd like to encourage you to turn your Bibles there. Uh, Over the next coming weeks, I'm going to really encourage you to bring a Bible with you, whether it's your cell phone, whether it is the good old paperback, you know, or hardbound, whichever one you have, Bible, because here's what I know and here's what I've seen. Our children, the next generation around us, they learn faith from the way that we model it. And if we sit in a, a chair, even every Sunday, and we come, and most of the time we rely on this screen for our input of what the Bible says, what we are not doing ourselves and what we're not teaching is how to flip through a Bible. I mean, if we were to go through a little Bible drill in this room right now, and I said, hey, you got five seconds to turn it to the book of Zechariah, how many of us would pass? I was talking to the el- yeah, Danny would. I was talking to our elders. I was talking to our elders this past week, and they started talking about Bible drill. Some of you may be old enough to remember this and went to the, I don't know, I guess the denominationally right church for Bible drill, but there was a time in our past where youngins would get in a room, and, and they would, some guy would quote a scripture or say a Bible verse and say, Romans 3, chapter 1, and that guy would have to flip, or that girl would have to flip to this page in the Bible, Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 1, and the fastest person that did it won. They got an extra crown in their jewel, or jewel in their crown, I, I suppose. And there are other times, you know, they quote, for God so loved the world, and they go, John 3.16, right? And when I look at our generation today, I go, how many of our students know the Word of God? How many of our adults know the Word of God? And so this is your pastor pleading with you. Read your Bible. Maybe bring your Bible. Here we go. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. We're going to stop there. Let me set up and maybe recap for some of you that don't know what's going on. So Zechariah is a book, and it's really this account of the prophet Zechariah taking the word of God to the people of God who had been in captivity. They've been released from captivity to go home and rebuild their city, Rebuild, rebuild the temple. And what you're seeing here is Zechariah's fourth vision in one night. God has come to him and give him four visions. And what's so special about this moment is that Zechariah is going to begin to see in this fourth vision and eventually the fifth vision, a, a specific vision not only for the leaders of the people of God, but for the entire people of God. So when you see this verse, chapter 3, verse 1, It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. What you need to know in this time when these 50,000 Israelites, the people of God, were released from Persia, from King Darius, to go home to Jerusalem, they had two leaders. A guy named Zerubbabel, who was really kind of like the governing leader. You could maybe call him king. 
And then they had a high priest named Joshua. Now, this ain't the same Joshua from Genesis, so don't get that twisted. This is a new Joshua. Names repeat in the Bible. I don't think I'm the only Chris in the world either. So, what we see here is we have this guy named Joshua all of a sudden in this vision, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. If you'll recall back, the angel of the Lord in Scripture is the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus. So you have Joshua the high priest, and you have Jesus, and then you have this third character, Satan. Otherwise, in, in, in this word in the Hebrew is known as the accuser. This word literally breaks down to mean the accuser. And what we know about Satan is this is what he does. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, recalling what who Satan is, says he is the accuser of our brother, and he has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So you have this picture of Joshua, the high priest, standing with Jesus, and then Satan, the accuser, is doing what he does. He is making accusations toward Joshua. Continue on, verse 2. It says, And the Lord says to Satan, the accuser, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So what we see here is our first understanding of what's happening in this vision. Certainly we have Joshua, who is the high priest, but more importantly, Joshua is representing the people of God. In this moment, he has come to represent all of God's people. And this is very much in line with the rest of the Old Testament. Oftentimes, the high priest would represent the entire people of God. Think about the Day of Atonement, or otherwise known as Yom Kippur. What would happen? The high priest would get all clean through his cleansing rituals and then would take a sacrifice to God for all of the people. And so Joshua is standing and being ridiculed by Satan. And what in reality we are seeing in this picture is that the people of God have Jesus with them in the, in the second person of the Trinity. They have God with them. But yet Satan is accusing the people of God of all sorts of things. Failures, missteps, a lack of faith, whatever it is. And God looks back at Satan and says, nope, not gonna happen. He uses this really odd phrase and it says, is not this a brand plucked? From the fire. This is the picture of a fire beginning and God reaching in and grabbing the stick out of the fire. He's making the assertion that the people of God are the stick. He is saving them from damnation. He's saving them from accusation. He's saving them from difficult times. He says, I have come to shut the mouth of the accuser and I'm going to remove the people of God from this situation. And at this moment, I can go, what is Zechariah thinking is about to happen? Like, what, What's going on? Because he is still in the middle of this situation. The people of God have not all of a sudden been removed. So what is about to happen? Verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. 
And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The first time I read this passage, I got chills. Zechariah is not one of those books that most of us growing, growing, grow up reading. It's not a, a, a heavy hitter. As a matter of fact, I'm in a Marco Polo group with several of the pastors, friends of mine around the country, and I told them weeks back, hey, we're going to be going through the book of Zechariah, and one of them poloed me back like, Zechariah? Bro, have you lost your mind? Like, what, what are you thinking? And I'm like, well, I'm sorry that I value the entire Word of God, and you don't, but, you know, <laughs> giving him a hard time. But the reality is, a book like Zechariah is a hard one to walk through, and there's dreams, and you've got to walk through those things, and the pastor's going, how do we make this relevant? Because that's what we all want. We all want something that's going to hit us today. I mean, when I came across this passage, I thought, what could be more relevant than this picture? What could be more relevant than hundreds of years before Jesus comes in flesh, the incarnate God? We see a picture of the iniquity of man being taken away. See, Joshua is wearing these filthy garments. And if you know anything about biblical text, that phrase, filthy garments, is much more R-rated than I'm going to get into this morning. It's nasty. You could best, I I guess an easy way of saying it in our context would be it's excrement-covered clothing. Isaiah has a pretty interesting picture of it as well in his chapter, in chapter 64. And the high priest, the man of God, representing the people, is wearing these clothes. And what's interesting about the high priest wearing these clothes, if you think back to my Day of Atonement illustration, before the high priest gets to all of those rituals for the people of God, they do a cleansing ritual of themselves. And so this would be an embarrassing moment for Joshua. This would be something that was hard for Zechariah to see. Because this is the man of God chosen by the people of God, chosen by the person of God, representing the people of God, and he's wearing excrement on his clothes. He is filthy in the sight of God. And to take it a step further, these clothes don't just represent what he's wearing. I think you and I have a, a, somewhere in our life we've talked and thought about clothes uh, something we take off and take on but in reality our clothes are a little bit of an extension of our character a little bit of an extension of who we are and if you don't believe me look at your kids you kind of model you kind of measure and put parameters on what they can and cannot wear right at least my parents did I, I was a kid in middle school I wore these things called jinkos I don't know if you know what these are wow I got some chuckles out of that one. So I went through a phase in my life where I had no style. Jinkos are like skater, 
gothic type clothes. And you know, you're looking at me like, what? This guy? What? What? Who do we hire as a pastor? So they were about this big around per pants. No lie. I don't know why skaters wore them because they got in the way. But you would wear these massive clothes. And then I didn't do it because I came from a good Christian home. But a lot of times these people would then wear like a graphic t-shirt with a band on it that was just terrible. Like their music was uh, less than godly. I'll just put it like that. And then there was usually like a, a chain from their wallet to their pants. And, and, and I can remember uh, my youth group actually had quite a few of these kids. And one of the kids came to church one day and he uh, was expressing himself in a very interesting way that day. He gelled his hair up and he had two spikes in the front, right? Coming to church like that. So I had a fun youth group. So he walks in and one of our sweet, nice ladies just looks at this kid and says, yeah, not happening. Like, you can't come to church like that. And it was a big, you know, fight in our church because there are others who are like, man, what's a better place for a kid like that who wants to have Satan hair? And she's going, he's going to have Satan hair in here. And it was just this big fight. But the reality is what we wear matters. And it speaks to more than just kind of what you're wearing. And in this moment... The people of God are being represented by Joshua, and so what we're seeing is a picture that God is looking at his people and saying, y'all are wearing excrement-covered clothing. It's not necessarily a picture of their worth, but it is a picture of their missteps. I think somewhere along the lines in our world, some people have come up with this thought or this vision that people, generally speaking, are inherently good. That people have this goodness about them. And I, I believe that when you walk through Scripture and you see over and over again what God talks about as our, our best works end up being excrement-covered clothing, I think you see a different picture than us being good people. Now that's not to say that people don't do good things. But I would push back on the one that says, I think people are good. I would say, well, give me a definition of good. Maybe give me a definition of bad. Because in the eyes of God, when he sees even his people that are betraying what he's called them to do, he says, you're wearing excrement-covered clothing. This is what I see when I see you. My son, my daughter, you are walking away from the things that I have called you to do. But it doesn't stop there. Amen. What, what happens in this picture with Joshua is that God removes those clothing. It says he removes the iniquity, meaning he removes the sin. He removes all of the miscomings, the short steps, the missing the mark. And then he gives him new clothes. And this is the picture of the gospel. This is the picture that we see in Christ. When you and I repent, we recognize that we have excrement-covered clothing on. And we turn from that and we go to God. God says, I will clothe you. I will bathe you in my righteousness. And when you come before the Father, he will not see your shortcomings he will see the blood of Christ bathed over you. Amen and amen, church. Like, that's the moment. Right there. I was looking for you to say amen. Appreciate that. 
Because in this picture, Joshua and the people of God have had their guilt removed. And God says, you no longer have to walk in that guilt. You have the freedom to dance. You have the freedom to sing. You have the freedom to be a positive, happy people, even in the midst of dark circumstances, because I've given you my righteousness. I've given you my goodness. I've filled you with the Holy Spirit. So come and dance in that freedom. And then he gives us a fuller picture. Jesus looks at Joshua. He looks at the people of Israel. And he looks at me and you. Verse 7, he says, The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Gave him assurance. Made sure, hey, this is what's going to happen. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The big part in this text, he says, if you will, then you shall. If you will, then you shall. The first, if you will, he says, if you will, walk. If you will, walk. And this walking gets to the sense of living one's life. What God is trying to get the people of God, Zechariah and Joshua, to all understand is that the way you live your life, the way you walk, will show people my character. Will show people who God is. And so I ask, does your walk person in the room this morning, person listening online, does your walk honor God? Our mission here is to love God, to love people and invest in God's kingdom. And, and in many ways, we came about that vision because when we see scripture over and over and over again, talk about walking in the faith, we understand that we have to go back, and Jesus says what are the two greatest commandments. The first is love God with all your heart, and the second is to love your neighbor. You've got to love God. You've got to love people. Following Jesus is not, has not, and will never be about a ritual cleansing. Jesus already performed that for you. You don't have to perform to get his grace, to get his love. Because even in your excrement-covered clothing, God sent His Son for you and said, turn from that and come to Me. It is a commitment to walk in God's ways. In Psalm 101.6, it says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with Me. He who walks in the way, that person is blameless and shall minister to me. Think about that for a second, church. Our walks minister to the Lord. Now, some of y'all got a little uncomfortable for a second because that's maybe not the traditional view that you've heard. Do we minister to the Lord? What does that mean? 
And right here in Scripture, it tells us the way that you follow God, the way that you live your life, the way that you walk can minister to God. It can bless Him. It can encourage Him. So the way that you respond to your boss, the way that you treat your employees can minister to the Lord. The way we speak to each other can minister to the Lord. The things that we listen to, the media that we consume can minister to the Lord. And this is extremely important that I get you to understand what it means to walk in the Lord. Because this is not about performance. This is about a heart change and saying, I'm going to follow after God. We are not just talking about being a good person. We're talking about being a godly person. In a few weeks, we're going to nominate some new elders. And through this process of nomination of elders, I I want you to know, we're going to see this in, in text laid out really clearly here in a second. The very first thing that we look at in a new elder is not how much biblical knowledge they have. It's not how well they can teach. It's how they walk. It's how they live their lives. Because God tells us to walk first. He says, if you will walk, if you will follow me with your life, not about all the spiritual per se things that you do, but if you'll follow me with all that you have. And he goes on to say, Keep my charge. He says, if you will walk and you will keep my charge. What does keep my charge mean? So walk is talking about our daily life, how we, how we raise our kids, how we have conversations with people. How do we treat the drive through person at the fast food restaurant when they give us the wrong order? But then he says, keep my charge. And some of that hits y'all right on the you know, head because y'all be treating them fast food people wrongly right? But how do you keep my charge? This is a, is a phrase that is specifically at first directed to Joshua because this keep my charge is a connection, is a relation to how the high priest would go through the rituals. This is how the high priest would kind of perform the spiritual aspects of their job. But if you keep in mind, Joshua is not just alone in this vision. Joshua is a representation of the people of God. And so what God is looking at the people of God and you and me today is saying, how do you spiritually perform? And I don't want you to hear as a performance like there's necessarily this, oh, that was good, that was bad, grading scale, zero to ten. The reality is he's asking, do you do these things? Like spiritually, how are you uplifting the people of God the church of God, the pastor that I put in your life, the ministers around you, how are you ministering to others? How are you going about this in your life? You know, at every turn in my life, God just continues to surprise me. Just over a year ago, I became the lead pastor here. And I'm going to be honest, we... We were in a difficult spot for a little while. It was just a a tough place. We had some growing issues, and and we just couldn't seem to to get momentum. And so when the elders approached me about 
leading here, I thought, no way. I talked to my mentors, and they're going, are you out of your mind, Chris? I'm going, apparently. Because God looked at me and said, even in the brokenness of what's going on, do you trust me? I said, absolutely. Talked to Amy. Absolutely. And so I take over as a lead pastor, and I'm trusting in God, and we're putting together dreams and visions. And then COVID-19 comes. (laughs) Great time to grow a church. And over the past several months, if you know anything about my personality type, I'm not a guy that likes to just sit back and kind of kick a can down the road and go, well, when COVID lifts, we can grow. But at the same time, I'm not somebody who, who wants to push too hard because I know my wife calls me a bull in a china shop. My, my resting state is to go in somewhere that maybe needs some delicacy, needs a little suave, and I just go, hey, let's fix it right now. I just scared somebody in the front row. I apologize. <laughs> See, bull in a china shop. That's what happens. That's just how I am. It's not, you know, it's not something I wake up and I intentionally make that decision to do, but that's how God has wired me. And in some senses, it's a good thing. In some senses, it's a difficult thing. But over the past year, man, I, I can't tell you how blessed I have been to be your pastor. Like, we have seen some amazing things in this church. If you, get, if you can just corner one of our elders for a minute and have them give you a testimony of what God has done in our church, you will be blown away. We have money in the bank. I know that might not seem much to y'all, but to a guy who leads a church at a time, we might not have had any money in the bank, and now we do. Amen. Like, woo! We can turn the lights on today. It's a win. Further than that. We've seen people visiting our church in the last two months, and there was about a six-month span, and I know COVID plays a big part of that, but there's about a six-month span that there was nobody that darkened those doors that I didn't know. And then we've had visitors coming into the church. We've had people giving their life to Jesus. I've seen others who, if you'd have asked me a year ago if they would have stayed through this transition, I'd have said, heck no. And they're here, and some of them are the same ones that have poured their souls and their hearts into this church. We've seen some really good things happen here because you, as the people of God, have kept his charge. But like I said, we need to get better. I'm a guy who always wants to see us grow. And so when we look at this keeping the charge, there's some housekeeping things that we need to take care of. There's some things that you and I need to have a heart-to-heart with. And I'm not talking about literally you and I. I'm really just talking about you by yourself and me by myself. We need to have some introspective moments in our heart and say, am I keeping charge of what God has called me to do? Because here's the deal. If you say that you have a seat at the table at Piedmont Church, meaning this is your home, you're here. Scripture makes it really clear that my job, the elder's job, the other ministers here's job, is not to do all of the work. Ephesians 4.12 says that I am here, they are here, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if you don't know what those words mean, it means to get after it, to do it, 
to not just come and sit in a seat, but to be actively engaged in the growth of this church. Because if I went around to each of you individually and I said, hey, do you want to see Piedmont grow? You would likely, Lord willing, say yes. I want to see us reach people for Christ. I, I want to see us connect with those in the community. I want to see this church grow. And in keeping my charge, I could look back at you and say, what have you done to make that happen? What have you done to ensure the growth here? We have five core values. And Piedmont 101 people, I won't go over these double, twice, but I'm going to hit you, everybody in this room right now. Because I, it's important that you understand what it means to keep my charge and what we as an elder team have said. This is what it means to keep the charge at Piedmont, to be present. Your presence matters. Your presence impacts others. He says that he has called you to be a part of the gathering. This isn't some optional thing that you're just a part of. Church isn't just some show and you can leave and go, you know, I thought his message was really good today. You know, it really hit me well. Or I didn't really like it that much. He tells you it doesn't matter if the guy can't preach at all, come to church, right? Doesn't matter if the music stunk that morning. It's about coming together and sitting under the word of God and proclaiming worship back to him. But when you are present, you know what it does? It models for others the importance of being present. It models to your children in the future years to come how important it is to be a part of the body of God. You know, there was a time when some of us were growing up, we lived a life that kind of represented when the doors were open at the church, we were here. Right? Some of you are that, are that person. When you were a kid, when the doors were open on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, you went to Sunday school, and then you went to big church, and then you went home for lunch or out to eat or whatever, and then Sunday night you brought your hiney right back up in there, and you listened to a half-decent sermon because the pastor was tired from the morning. You had a little bit of, you had a step-down worship team, right? It wasn't the big choir or whatever. It was just kind of maybe somebody on a piano and a person who couldn't sing as well, but they had a good heart. So we're going to put them up there, Right? And then Sunday was done, and you were like, okay, cool, we're done. No, because then you had Wednesday night Bible studies. And then sometimes, if you were really special, you had revival week at your church, right? And we lived at the church, and we were a part of it. And there's good and bads about that, but somewhere along the way, you and I looked and said, you know what, one hour on Sunday morning is really good. That's good enough. And I go, how did we go from one extreme to the bare minimum, essentially? And God is saying, be present. Like, don't keep tally, but are you present in your local church? Let me, let me say this, too. Being on time matters. <laughs> hey. Hey. So, here, let, let, me, let me say this. Worship team, production team, I love you. And if for no other reason being on time matters, here's why it matters. They put a lot of time in prep. And as great as their hearts are, the first song in a worship service that has 15 people in it is tough. And that's putting it lightly. It's tough. And so being on time to the worship gathering isn't just some little pet peeve that pastors have. It shows your accountability, your responsibility, and your view of how important it is to be together. Getting lost in conversation happens. Traffic happens. Kids, Lord willing, we know they happen. I get it. But what are you doing to make sure you're on time? Most of you are on time to work. 
most of you are on time to that basketball game or, you know, other sporting event when the Lord allows us to go back or that movie or what. You're on time to the things you want to be on time to, but church rolls around and boy, 1030 is pretty early. I'm just saying, being present is also more than Sunday. I'm asking, are you present in other people's lives in this room? If you were to look around and say, I have relationships with other people, do you? And that leads us to our second point. The first one is be present. The second one is to connect. Who do you connect with in here? Are you a part of groups? I'm, I'm in the text message gang of the Rooftop Crashers community group. And, and Kenny, I, I appreciate, we've got great leaders in this room who lead other groups, and Kenny, I appreciate you because one of the things that he does is he ensures connection. He, invo- he values it. And so they go through prayer requests every week, and he's, I think they're going out once a month for dinner. They're ensuring that it's not just about a one-time Bible study. We've had other groups in the past that have done this, that are doing it currently. But that's just one step. Do you connect with others here. And I know it's weird because we're doing the dance of can I talk to you? Or are we too close, not close? I get all that, but my, I'm asking you, are you looking to connect with others in the room spiritually to encourage them? Are you building rhythms in your life or are you just trying to stay in your silo? Third, service. God calls us to serve in the church. I got to hurry up. I'm speaking too long. Hunter, apologize. I'm not to cut us off. Do you give your all in service? There's some of you in here who serve a lot. You do a great job. You do what is expected. You, you go, and sometimes, above and beyond. You, you go to look to make things better. But let me ask all of us this question. Do we see service in the church as a necessity to keep his charge? We say, oh, man, Piedmont is my home church, but then some of us don't do anything to make it feel like a home. And you may be the person that says, oh, it's not the season for me. That's not really what that scripture says. Just FYI. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, we, we got into this place in the church where we just, you know, there are ebbs and flows in our life. And so there's ebbs and flows where I can be engaged in church and when I can not be engaged in church. And I would say, okay, cool. So I'll just look at Joshua and this vision that God gives him and says, you know, when he tells you to keep charge, it really just means if, you, if you're good right now, people of God who are, are being attacked by people around you, you know, when it's easy to build a wall, you should build a wall. When it's hard to build a wall, ah, it's not in your season of life. God's calling us to serve in the church. I talked about those visitors and those people who've been kind of coming and here and there. You know how we grow? You serve, and you serve with your whole heart. Like when they walk in the doors, I would rather hear people say, you know, that church was a little too engaging, right? As opposed to, you know, I came, and they were, they were nice, but after week two or three, I just didn't meet anybody. I just, I didn't know anybody. Sure, they all seemed nice, and, you know, Chris seemed like a good dude. The worship team was awesome and everything, but I just didn't meet anybody. That's part of serving, guys. That's, that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be connecting with others. We're supposed to be allowing them a place to serve. Fourth one, everyone's favorite, giving. I'll read this text really quickly. Malachi 
It says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? God replies, in your tithes and your offerings. I think pastors avoid this one because in some way, shape, or form, we feel guilty that your giving somehow like supports my life. And let me say this, if you're giving to this church because of me, you're giving for the wrong reason. Stop giving. You should be giving because God has called you to give to his church. And I am called to serve here not because of a dollar amount, not because of a paycheck. I was doing pastoral ministry long before I got paid for it. I like getting paid for it. It's good. (laughs) It makes it easier on my hours and my week that I'm not working 95 hours because I'm working a 40-hour job and then I'm pastoring and then I'm shepherding my family. But God calls us to give. How are you giving? And the last one is to strive for excellence. In Colossians 3, God says, do everything that you do unto him. And I don't know about you, but God never looks at us and says, hey, just give me half. Just give me half of your effort. He says, go all in. My last thing about this, and I'll hurry up and close. Somewhere when the contemporary model of church was made, maybe it was intrinsically put into the model, maybe we added to it later. Let me preface. I love contemporary church. We are contemporary church. We're not changing from that. But somewhere in this model that we function in, there was the idea that we want to make it easier for the unbeliever to come to church. So we're going to play with electric guitars and cool songs and make the lights work, and we're going to have a a greeting team and parking teams, and we're going to make all these things easy. Church growth people are studying Ritz-Carlton and Disney World for how their customer service procedures work. And some of you are going, really? And I'm going, yeah, I've, I've been a part of that. I've watched how hotel chains grow and how they treat their customers and how they have good customer experiences. And we've tried as churches to try to relay that back into our culture. And here, in some senses, is what we've done. You ready? We've made some soft Christians. We don't exist as a church specifically for you. That's not in Scripture. It says that you and I come together and we make we as the church and we as the body encourage each other, lift each other up, We connect, we serve, we give, we're present. And we do it all in the name of God with excellence. And so as much as we will always try to make people feel welcomed and comforted, know that if you call Piedmont home, the calling from God is to be active in that process, not to be passive. As the band comes up and I close, we continue on in verse 8. So God tells Joshua how to walk in his ways and to keep charge in his statutes. When you combine these two things together, what you see is how the believer should follow after God. With our walk, with our everyday life, 
and then with the way that we spiritually function and spiritual disciplines and the connection of the church and the way that we move spiritually. You put these, things to, these two things together and this is our life. And then in verse 8, he says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This is a, a word that Isaiah uses in a different text to talk about the Messiah, talking about Jesus. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription. This is talking about the lashes that Jesus would receive, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, the, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So here's the picture. God removes our filthy rags. He gives us new ones and he says, strut in it. He says, live your life with some happiness. Live your life with some pep. Stop being so doldrum, Christian. Like, you've got the answer in front of you. And this is where the band is behind me building, FYI. And so this is the moment where God looks at each and every one of us and says, you should walk and keep my charge and be encouraged to do so because I've already won the battle. That wall you have to build, people of God, I'm going to build it with you. Don't worry about the things on the outside. Keep my charge. Walk with the Lord. Keep your head up. Be positive because I am faithful, so you be faithful. When I give you the righteousness of God, don't just look back at me and say I can sit in my seat. Walk in the righteousness. Peter says, gird your loins. Get ready to fight the battle. Like church, we should be excited to be the people of God because this is who he's called us to be. Like we don't have to act like we lost because we won. He is faithful. He promises us the end result and the process. So walk in that. Keep his charge.